0: sermon we called Christian Liberties in a Growing Love for One Another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the fellowship of the saints. We thank you for this spirit of unity birthed in the bond of peace by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ we have. There's no organization, there are no other groups in this world that are even close to what you've given us. This will last for eternity. All other things will pass away. All other things will fall under judgment, but not the church, not the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been blood-bought. It's been bathed, and it's pure and blameless before our holy God. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be good stewards of this church, this local assembly right here. We love one another and forgive one another learn together and grow together and be discipled together. Time is short. You're going to return someday. And so, Lord, help us run this race well. May the Word of God continue to be our source of truth that drives us along as the Spirit spotlights the beauty of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Help us, Lord. Father, thank you that we're not alone, that there are many, many other churches, many in this town that we fellowship with and thank the Lord for many in our state and around our country and now around the world, Lord, even in places of great suffering like Ukraine and Afghanistan. We thank you that your word is not chained. You birth the church, you grow the church, and you cannot be stopped. And so we find great comfort in that, Lord. We ask today that you would strengthen us, challenge us. Lord, there's probably things we need to give up after listening to this sermon. And Lord, we pray that you would bring that conviction to us. And may we walk with you in a way that is full of love and joy. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Oh Lord, you're good to us. May your word preached today be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We started in 1 Corinthians 8, three weeks ago, and we've been working our way down through this passage. In verse 1, Paul has now brought up yet another issue that they have written back to him. Doubtlessly, Paul challenged them on some of their pagan rituals that they've been attending and being involved with, and so he writes to them, now concerning, verse 1, the things sacrificed to idols, he's bringing up an issue that they have brought up. This is a little little hobby horse that they're hanging on to. They want to embrace these things. They want to be free, exercise their liberty, and do as they please. And so Paul begins to set this up by showing them and telling them that there is certain knowledge that is full of arrogance. And guess what it's devoid of? Love. You can always tell knowledge that's not from God, knowledge that's not... Generate it from the truth of God's word and the love of Jesus Christ because it lacks love. And so Paul says, love edifies, love builds up. He tells them that suppose that you think you know something, but because you don't know God and His truths and His love, you really know nothing. It's quite a sharp rebuke, but he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. What a what a great Difference, contrast. Oh, I know God. Paul goes, Oh, you're better off if he knows you. (laughs) Because that changes everything. And then last week, we started to work our way back to this theme. Paul took a little break to to kind of point out their arrogancy. But then he comes back, verse 4, therefore, concerning the things that are the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now he makes his way right back there. But he wants to win them over after the last rebuke, (laughs) right? Sometimes when your pastor rebukes you, you may get a little mad and you check out for a minute until I kind of pull you back in. <laughs> well, that's what he's doing here, right? He says, look, let's talk about this thing. But as we talk about it, we know that there's no idols. We know that there's just one God. And Corinthians will start listening again. Yeah, he's right. We're monotheistic. We're not polytheistic. We believe in one God. God. And so he brings them back in, and and though he says, look, there's many of these so-called gods and lesser gods and greater gods that all these people serve, there is just one true God in verse 6. And then he leaks the equality of the Father with the Son, and we spent a great amount of time last week rejoicing in the equality and the shared essence, the shared nature of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, all spotlighting that through the Word of God. But then he says in verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge yet. Now he's beginning to set up what we're going to see today. There's some that haven't been discipled yet. There's some that are still a little bit weak. They've come out of idolatry. They've come out of very difficult things. And your actions are not helping them. In fact, you might be defiling them. And so Paul begins to set up this idea that Christian liberties are for the glory of Christ and therefore helping us grow to love one another, not hurt those relationships. So let me give you a few thoughts this morning as we finish out chapter 8 and make our way toward 9 next week. The Apostle Paul, Paul's refusal to let anything pollute the gospel is our first thought here. Paul's refusal to let anything pollute the gospel look at verse 8 with me but if but if food will excuse me but food will not commend us to god if we neither the worse if we or we if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat so here paul is clarifying that eating or not eating in in some cases has no spiritual significance on Your relationship with God or commending yourself to God. If you're here this morning and you just started the Daniel diet, I got bad news for you. That's not gonna get you closer to God. Right? I remember at a Bible study one time, some lady we're out in the middle of the desert doing starting churches and planting. Some lady came in and she was so excited, she goes, I've started a Daniel diet and I feel so close to God. How do I answer this? Oh, food does not commend you to God." Again, he's making a statement that they would agree with. He's bringing them in, but he's trying to help them understand that you cannot gain the approval. This word "commend" means to place beside or stand in the presence with someone. He say, "Look, you can't gain approval or have some better standing with God. By doing or eating or not eating or not drinking or drinking or any of these things, that's not what makes your standing excellence with God. And it's interesting that he uses food here. Food is an excellent example of something that God has not forbidden. There's no significance on your relationship, your eternal relationship with him whether you abstain from something or not. Jesus himself said Mark 7, 15, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him. It's what goes in, right? You know, that, that's what goes into him, does it? It's what proceeds out of him, out of the heart of man, he says, that defiles the man. Timothy was written by Paul in his beginning pastoral duties in Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 4 through 5. He says, for everything created by God is good. There's a battle going on in that church. Well, we, we don't need that. (laughs) You know that self-righteous claim to things. So Paul says, everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by the means of the Word of God and prayer. So the one who abstains is not at a disadvantage, or the one who eats is not at an advantage, or vice versa. Paul is revealing his, his own personal view of food, his own view of kosher, isn't he here? This was a challenging to them. But I think what's fascinating that I picked up as I continued to study this passage is these are the exact same words Paul uses about circumcision. So remember the t- uh, the thought here of this first verse is Paul. This first section here is Paul's refusal to let anything pollute the gospel. So he uses the very same words. Look at chapter seven, verse nineteen, just across the page, maybe. Circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Wait, they go wait. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't there a commandment? <laughs> No, no, he's he's talking about a love-driven obedience here, and so if you think you're going to do something to your body in order to gain a better stand with God, that's foolishness. See, he's using very similar language. Galatian church was struggling with this as well, trying to tie some physical act with justification. Paul says in Galatians 6, 15 says, For neither is circumcision nothing, nor uncircumcision. And then he makes this comment, But a new creation. Oh, that's everything. See, as believers, we're new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. See, we're now new creations. So whether it's food or circumcision, these things do not commend us to God. So Paul is refusing to let anything pollute the gospel. And we, and we, brothers and sisters, we have to work at this because it isn't very difficult for us to maybe look at somebody the way they're dressed, or or maybe something they put on their body, or something different about them, and then we kind of have this little self righteous view and we go, well, "I don't think I'd ever wear that." What can I tell you about Jesus? See, we don't pollute the gospel. This was what Paul's after. Now, the problem was that the Corinthians picked up on this term uh, liberty or freedom or authority. They, Paul uses that term several. He's going to use it in verse 9 here in just a moment here. But they picked up on that. But Paul's using it for his position in Christ. Uh, I'm free. I'm not dictated by the world's philosophy and whatever religious people think. I, I'm free. I have liberty in Jesus Christ. I don't have to come in some kind of level system or, or a list of things. Well, they turned this term into something that would justify what they wanted to do, namely eating food sacrificed to idols, going to dining halls or festivals within these pagan temples. So for Paul, he, he says that's the wrong use of the word liberty. Because of that, you are wounding, we'll see in a minute, you're wounding your wicked brother because, I mean, your weaker brother, because of your wicked desires to please and gratify self. I thought about this and I wrote this in my notes in bold. I said, when personal views outweigh the scriptural truth, we tend to swing hard one way or the other. Did you catch that? when personal views, views that I have, that I think everybody else should have, become stronger than what the Scripture teaches, pretty soon you are way over here or way over here and the Scripture's here. And we find ourselves in conflict. And we find ourselves with self-righteousness or, we, or some may just feel so condemned because they can't live up to the, to the list that is being handed out. But your upbringing may have a problem with this, right? Maybe you were brought up in a certain way, and there, there are battles for freedom, and your wrestle with self-righteousness because you were told something. If you do this, you gain that. It's not easy to get over some of those things. As I was thinking through this, I thought of Peter and the huge, huge hurdles and doubtlessly some self-righteousness. When the Lord commands him in Acts chapter 10 to eat of those things that were ceremonially unclean up to that point. Remember, he's with Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. And, and, he's, and he's waiting for these guys that are going to show up and lead him back there. And, and he drifts off and the Lord comes to him in a dream and shows him these, these meats, these animals that are coming down. And, and this battle begins to rage. Because God was showing Peter that he had linked certain thoughts and some self righteousness to his view of himself. See, that's, that's we have to fight that, don't we? So Peter had to get over that. He had to realize that I'm 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 a child of God. Christ died on the cross, not because of what I ate or didn't eat. Because I was a sinner and I needed to be saved. And saved solely by his work. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the kingdom of God is. That's what salvation is. We're declared righteous. We have peace with God. We have the fruit of the Spirit, which is full of joy. See, as Christians under the new covenant, God, through his son's finished work, has caused us to be clean and pure and blameless. That's what he says about us. We're holy. So so clearly, as we study this, we, we can't make ourselves out to be more righteous by what we do or don't do or what we eat or don't eat or drink or not drink. However, it does make a great difference to those whose biblical knowledge is still weak. Their conscience is Not yet controlled by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, right? And so what I think Paul's doing in this opening statement in verse 8 is he's saying Christ plus anything pollutes the gospel and it causes confusion. How many young believers, or maybe when you were a young believer, that you were so confused? Because you heard what the Bible said, but then you were told or you gave these examples these people, the way they dressed, the way they ate, and what they did, and you were find yourself following people and not God. Paul does not want this happening. He does not want that kind of confusion. He wants people to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and practice according to the scriptures, not according to the culture. Second thought, the graceless liberties and their stumbling blocks, verse 9, and their stumbling effects. Verse 9 says this, listen to Paul, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, Paul is now challenging us on our sensitivity to new believers. Are you sensitive to them? Are you sensitive to their struggles that they have with sin? I don't know, maybe you were almost perfect when you came to be a Christian? He's just like, just barely missed. Well, most people, when they come to Christ, all people, we have all kinds of issues, don't we? We don't quite understand yet how the gospel impacts the way our minds think and what we do and say. We just know we're sinners and Jesus died for us. It's very elementary, isn't it? And it's very beautiful. Paul does not want this lack of sensitivity to hurt these new believers. It seems as he tackles this, what what you seem to think not is wrong. Paul's saying in a in a certain way, it's wrong because it wounds. It becomes wrong if somebody stumbles over it. This again, this uh, I've said this several times through this chapter eight that the Greek word here for stumbling block does not have to do with just offending someone, but it causes someone to fall by urging them to practice or participate in something that goes against their conscience. So Paul is starting verse 9 with this adversive conjunction here, but, listen, but, followed by an imperative, take care that your liberty doesn't wound. Now, it's very interesting the choice of words here. He uses a Greek word blepo, which we most of the time would translate to "see." but it's an imperative here, and it has this idea. Here's how I translated this myself. I said, this is the idea of opening your eyes and being careful not to cause someone to stumble. Now, most of the translations say, be careful, it's strong, it leans that way. Galatians 5.15 uses the same way. It says, but if you bite and devour one another, take care, same word, that you do not consume one another. So, so, don't turn a blind eye. <laughs> don't refuse to stop caring for those who are a little weaker. So, now you see why Paul was working so hard to show the contrast between knowledge and love. See, their knowledge led them to a point where they weren't bothered by the offense of a younger brother or sister. Well, that's not biblical knowledge, is it? Now, Paul's keying in on this word liberty. Maybe translate it freedom or authority in your translation here. But it's doubtlessly been a catchword for them, right? He's doubtlessly wrote them in a previous letter and taught them when he was there to be careful with their liberties, not to cause people to stumble. So they're using this word back to him, and it's a catchword for them. Now, the word itself means to have freedom and to act within those freedoms without restraint, right? So we are free in Christ. We're, we're not restrained by a list of things that, that we have to do to gain Jesus. So what, what a beautiful word for those who live in a gospel-centered life, right? We love our Lord and the freedom He's given us. We don't do seven steps to this and, and do that in order to gain this or have to be baptized to finish out salvation or have to take communion or any of those things, right? We have... Liberty in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he accomplished it all. And we live a joyful lives underneath the gospel. But Paul's warning them here. He's warning them to take heed that their liberty, which Paul certainly agrees with, does not become a liberty that causes stumbling blocks to others. And you can see the, the Corinthians, they, they seem to equate knowledge with a means of right. So, so they're saying, well, we're knowledgeable, so now we have this right to do this. There's no consideration of the weak. In fact, their knowledge, their understanding of knowledge has become their highest thing to conquer. Not worship of Christ, not care for the flock and to be a one who seeks unity and peace. They see their knowledge as the most highest thing they can have, the exaltation of the individual. Paul, Paul has a very much opposite approach here. In, in And to Paul, the opposite must prevail. Love is the result of knowledge, right? This is what he's been teaching. See, when we love because of what we know, that leads the Christian to freely give up his or her rights or liberties for the sake of someone else. I know that's kind of anti-American. But we are Christians first. And that means, Paul is asked, would you give up something for the cause of Christ because he's worthy of it? This is what true love does. See, Paul saw the unity of the church as one of the greatest blessings of salvation. I think that's one of the reasons you're here. There's unity here, there's not fighting and backbiting and bitterness and separation. Because the word of God is preached and Christ is held in highest esteem, it brings us together. I think that's one of the reasons you're here. So Paul wants them to see that their desires for liberty are breaking the unity of the church, not bringing it together. And I would say this, most likely what I see in this text is he is charging each member of the church that they have a responsibility to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And you and I do that as well. If you're a Christian and you're in this room today or watching online and you're part of this church, you have a responsibility to cling to the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and exalt Jesus Christ and hold his word up. But unfortunately, the Corinthians wanted their liberty apart from their weaker brothers and sisters. It's almost like, well, they'll catch up with us later. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave a trail of crumbs behind us. It was an arrogant view because, see, they believed their knowledge had given them liberty. And, and we're going to see next week even liberty from Paul's authority as an apostle. This verse just hit me as I was studying this. is out of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Right in the middle of that opening statement there, he says, The sin which so easily entangles us. See, there's are sins that easily entangle us, and they don't only entangle, entangle us, they trip up others. and So we must care for the things of Christ, that we, we as a church, the body of Christ bought by his blood, we are not causing others to stumble, others to fall in sin. Now, third thought, a Christ-centered, passionate plea for the rights of the weak. He's going to start here in verse 10. Let me read that. But really, his explanations going down through 12 will hit each one of these verses. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge, a little bit of sarcasm here, right? Sees you, the one with all the knowledge, (laughs) dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Well, see, the mature believer might be able to handle certain things. You see, I'm purposely staying away from some physical things that people often use as text to teach on, don't don't do this or eat this or drink that. So I thought about this. I thought there might be an occasion where you have a relative or somebody who has a graduation or some event at another uh, religion, And you would go there and and you would want to support that family member, but you're mature enough to see the false teaching that there, and you're actually mature enough to look for opportunities to speak the truth. But a younger Christian, their conscience still being weak and maybe in a state of vulnerability, that same uh, situation would do them great harm. See, as Christians, we... We never want to influence a brother and sister to sin against their conscience here. So what Paul's doing is he's warning the Corinthians not to use their liberty as some kind of stumbling block there in verse 9. And he, in these preceding verses here as he talks about this, he's making this passionate plea for, for the rights of the weak to see that as, as, as real circumstances and not to be some kind of hypocrite. Now he really grabs your attention with this this first conjunction here in verse 10, for, he he wants you to know this. He's launching into this explanation. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, again, there's some sarcasm here. You think that's what they want to be known for is their knowledge. And so Paul's referencing this someone as the weak. And if they see you with all your knowledge, right, with all your great wisdom that you've gained, eating in an idol of a temple, Won't that weaker brother or sister be emboldened to eat something sacrificed to a pagan god? In other words, won't that weaker person in the faith now have have more strength to sin? Maybe I don't have to leave this worldly thing. Maybe I can have that with all my family that's there, all the relatives, everything I've been brought up with. Maybe I can have that and I can have Jesus. See, do we teach that in any way? So Paul is questioning them. And I I think there's really three things that come out of this statement here. First, those who have this, quote, knowledge, he's used that three times in just chapter 8 alone, they're actually going, listen, they're actually going to cultic meals in temples of of the pagans, and in their dining halls and in their festivals, they're actually attending such a thing. And I spoke very directly to this last week and seeing things firsthand in some of my travels. It is demonic. It is pagan. It is so far from the fundamental truths of Christianity. So it is most certain that Paul would have taught against these things. He he, he was there, right? He, He spent months there with him. A year and a half we think we determined he was there in the original planting of his church. Doubtlessly, these are real issues. Second that I see out of this is there's some Corinthians that are probably encouraging, if not all, the church to agree with their knowledge on this. You know, when, when you really want to sin, it really helps if you can get other people to believe you. And it really helps if you can get them to go with you. Because now it seems not to be sin. Because we're all doing it right? Remember your dad saying, well, if everybody jumps off a bridge, would you? (laughs) Well, I guess. (laughs) They're all going. See, it feels better, right? This is what the Corinthian church is trying to do. They're trying to persuade, meaning they're encouraging these weak to join them in this meal, not realizing the damage. And, And brothers and sisters, just think of something that you let go, that had a grip on you, before you were saved, that held you in captive and bondage, had held you there, that grip, and if somebody led you back into that and said, it's okay, we're in Christ now. How confused you would be. And that's what they're doing here. Third, they're not only offending the weaker with their Gnostic views, not only that, but they're leading them to sin against their conscience by encouraging them to eat these foods, these meat offered to sacrifice, was when Acts 15, verse 29, the elders of Jerusalem, the, the overseers of the birth of these church, Paul was sent out by these men, said to abstain from this. They didn't give them a list of keep this and keep that. They said, hey, here's a few things. Don't eat meat offered to sacrifice. Don't eat something strangled. Stay away from the blood. Stay out of fornication. That's really going to hurt your Christian growth. And yet they had no problem. So this tells us that they believe in their knowledge. They've outgrown the leadership. We're just, you know, we're we're, we're farther ahead than them. So Paul's making a point that it's not the food, listen to this, that's attempting to destroy their faith, but it's the idolatry that comes with eating in those temples and the practice that, that is such a difficulty for these young believers. It would be like a drug on them. And they didn't care. They didn't care. Idolatry has a death grip on people. And they are willing to lead them back in. Look at the force that he comes back with in verse 11. For through your knowledge, there he goes again, he who is weak is ruined. The brother whose sake Christ died. This is strong language. Again, he uses this instructive constru- uh, conjunction here um, to set the verse up. He's about ready to graphically describe someone who claims to have a strong knowledge of truth but has no love or sensitivity for a weaker brother and will lead them to ruin. Have you ever known someone who came to the church, proclaimed Jesus Christ, and, but then fell away? And you later seen them and they were caught up in a sin that's just destroyed their life and destroyed homes and children and all that. But they claimed they were believers. Brothers and sisters, we have to lovingly not be a part of that what brings ruin to people's lives. This is a strong word, ruined. Your Bible might say destroyed carries the idea of perishing, of being put to death, destruction to bring to nothing. In other words, Paul is saying it causes people to sin by leading them into situations they can't handle, destructive situations. This is strong language that suggests that the Christian life is at stake here. All that, that, that they saw in this town, they, they didn't see that as a problem. So all to be done for the sake of Corinth believers, they were to to put aside their their liberties and their self-righteousness and say, I need to care for this person, but they weren't doing it. it. It almost seems Paul is anticipating the tragic result of Christians who live with one foot in the world and one foot in church. See, there isn't the letting go or cutting off or dying to all those things. I, I, I want to be accepted, and I want to live in this culture, but I also have to do something on Sunday that helps me go to heaven. See, Paul sees that. He's anticipating this. And it seems to me that Paul is making an argument that the idolatry is not the weaker brother. The idolatry is theirs. They don't want to give this up. Well, that's idols, Right? That's something that has you, has you gripped well, and you act like you have ability over it, but you don't. It still owns you. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's showing actually the real idolatry is you who claim to have knowledge. And what seems to be in view here with this word ruin is that the former idolater is going to fall back into the grips of that idolatry and it isn't hard to study Paul and what he thinks about idolatry and how he connects it to demonic activity. This is why Paul says you're ruining the weak by your so-called knowledge. If you're if ruining if ruining means to destroy, it's quite possible that Paul not only has new believers in mind But he might be also focusing on the destructive nature, the evangelical or evangelistic effort of the loss. I mean, Christian, is that our view? Does does the love of Jesus and what he did for us, dying, buried, and resurrected, does that have enough power in our life for us to say no if it would cause anybody to stumble or not know Jesus? Notice that Paul gives the motivation how to do this. I love this phrase in here. For the brother whose sake Christ died. I've had many discussions and almost arguments from certain people who want to hold their view, hold their idea of something that they want to hold on to. And I've often asked them, I said, well, what would it cost? What what would it take for you to give that up for the sake of your wife or your husband or your children or for another brother or sister in the church? well, I just really think I have the liberty to do it. I said, well, if the death of Christ work. would that be enough? See, that's what Paul's doing here. And Paul's saying, look, the gospel, the death of Christ for this dear brother or sister, that should be the ultimate motivation for us not to cause someone to sin against their conscience here. And again, Paul's describing a type of love that builds up and edifies versus defends themselves with their knowledge. So Paul says, look, Love is built on death, the death of Jesus. If Jesus didn't die for my sins, I will never love you. I wouldn't do it because I wouldn't be saved. I wouldn't have the power of spirit for me to die to self and love my church and my fellow brothers and sisters and my elders and all of that. I love you because Christ died for me. Death creates love, but only one death can do that it's the death of Jesus Christ and he didn't stay dead he beat death he was resurrected and he promises a resurrection for us and we have joy to give up things in this very very short life because Jesus is going to come back so Paul's teaching that love moves in a direction towards unity and care for others but at the Corinth arrogance and their insensitivity cares little about the ruin of a potential member of God's family because their freedom is at stake. So Paul's using this to contrast the difference between Christ's love and human knowledge. Now, clearly, I just wanted to add this. Clearly God's word says that he writes his truth on the hearts of all people. Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15 says that the pagans even live according to a law that they don't know. Because God wrote right and wrong, right? Man knows that the rob, pillage, steal, and rape people is wrong. He knows that. And so there's a conscience that God put in all beings and until they sear that conscience as they lie to themselves so long for, for their own profits. God has given all men to know what's wrong and right. But for the believer, I want you to think about this, the believer's conscience is controlled by the work of the Spirit, isn't it? And the Spirit's job is to spotlight the Word of God. But as a young believer, the conscience is still weak. It's it's still growing. It's still learning to allow the Holy Spirit to spotlight Christ, spotlight the Word on the heart. And so we should not get in the way of that. But listen, if you've been in the faith and you've been discipled, Spirit controls your conscience. And if your conscience has been seared where you don't mind continuing in something that God's word is clear on that I should avoid to cause stumbling block, then we would say, oh, brother or sister, keep growing in the Lord. Now look at verse 12 with me. And so, by sinning against the brethren, the wounding of their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Well, now there's some real pressure (laughs) Getting put on here. Paul is not messing around, isn't he? He's speaking to those who are arrogant, those who are leaning on their knowledge, those who are unloving towards the weak. And what he's really saying in this verse is, on one hand, you cause a younger believer to stumble. You're sinning against that brother or sister with a strong expression. He says it this way, you're wounding their conscience. The word wounding means to strike or smite. You ever been hit? <laughs> Or stunned? I mean, that's the idea here. You've, you've stunned. You've, you've wounded their conscience. And, and, you're, and they're woozy now, and they can't quite make a decision. Have you ever seen somebody with a, with a head injury or a concussion? You, you really don't want to ask them to make giant decisions at that moment. So their conscience is wounded. They're spiritually stumbling. They're not sure. He says, you've wounded them. But on the other hand, notice that he says, here, you're not just offending the weak, you're offending and sinning against the Lord. Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of the brethren, you've done to me, Matthew 25. Oh, wow. <laughs> that puts another level there, doesn't it? When we sin against someone, when we do not consciously take that in, or or at least don't admit to it and deal with it, you wound that conscience of that person And our sin is against Christ, the Bible says. David sinned with Bathsheba. He said, my sin and my sin alone is against you, O Lord. He knew the offense. He knew the great sin was against God himself, though the sin affected so many people. A guy gets killed. A wife now is a widow. There's a new baby. He's lied to the nations. He understands that. But ultimately, he saw his sin against God. Hebrews chapter 6 Verse 6 gives us this idea that when we return to former sins, it's like we crucify the Son of God all over again and holding the Savior in a public disgrace. Boy, I looked at that text. It's one of the warning passages of Hebrew. And I thought, Lord, I don't want to sin where I, where I really say your death on the cross was not sufficient enough. But to wound a member of Christ's family is to wound Christ. To sin against one of Christ's own children is a sin against him. This is what Paul's saying. One of the things that's really interesting, he's been using singular verbs and and singular tenses all the way through here. And all of a sudden, this verse he goes to plural. And several, several commentators and theologians that I read believe that he's actually saying you're sinning against the church, too. You've hurt the church. So as Christians who embrace the gospel and are still amazed at the grace of Christ we're captured by the beauty of the Lord, we should live lives that don't cause the stumble. Dr. MacArthur wrote this. He said, We should fervently strive to limit our liberties at any time for anything to whatever degree necessary to encourage a young believer to live for the Lord or a young believer to live for the Lord or an unbeliever to come to Christ. Did you hear that? At any time for anything, to whatever degree necessary. That's love. That's true love. But sadly, these prideful, arrogant, so-called knowledgeable Corinth Christians didn't see this as an issue. In fact, they will attack Paul's apostleship over this. But love builds, brothers and sisters. Love builds. Who needs to be loved? Do you need to see, do you need a reminder how precious Christ is? And how precious the blood-bought ones that he has purchased himself, how precious they are. And when you look at at each other, this room full of people, the body of Christ that calls us this church, we should see each other as precious. Maybe enough just to start by remembering somebody's name and learning to love one another. For, as we wind this up, Christ-centered life... That displays an edifying love for a weaker brother. Listen to Paul's conclusion here and notice his spiritual maturity as he says, as he speaks about himself in verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, listen to this, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, most of you know I'm a beef guy. And we owned a ranch. We raised cattle. We love that. I read this, I thought. Give it all up to see one person follow Jesus. That's what we should do. Willing to give it all up. And, And Paul uses this strong conclusion with his therefore to sum up his whole argument that in reference to the stumbling block, he uses his own personal conduct for the sake of fellow believers. I will... I'll just stop all that stuff together. I'll give this up so that they grow in Christ. I mean, it's simple things. And again, I'm not giving you a list of physical things, but I want to think, what about an attitude? You're willing to give up an attitude. So many people are offended by the attitudes of Christians. I mean, just go deeper than physical things, right? Right? See, Paul's love is driving him to love fellow believers. They would give up meat. (laughs) He's using it as an example because that's the theme, right? They want to eat pagan things and do pagan things. So it is our conclusion and commitment to Christ and the gospel that we would give up whatever. Well, our last thought here is I just wrote down seven questions so we could examine whether our Christ-centeredness has anything to do with our Christian liberties? They're very quick, just something to chew on. I wanted to give you when we close here. The first question has to start this way Have you even examined your heart or mind to determine if indeed you're growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, I think it starts there. If you're here today and you go, oh, the pastor's talking about that, I need to give up this or give up that or whatever. It all starts with true knowledge. <laughs> Are you growing? There wasn't a reason that I I mean just thought, well, let's just do something about discipleship to start the church off. Are you growing? Are you growing in the true grace and knowledge of Christ or your own kind of knowledge that you can use for your own way, right? I've met too many people who call themselves reformed and I think they hold on to reform because they go, "Man, I didn't do anything. I didn't even choose myself. Jesus did it all, so I'm just going to live the way I want." What an abuse of salvation. Oh man, those of us that believe that Christ died for us and he knew us from the foundations of the world and we had absolutely nothing to do with our salvation because our will was corrupted, that should motivate us to sing, worship, and live for Jesus. But first, you've got to examine, is my own heart and mind determined to grow, continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? Or maybe some false views of knowledge that you're struggling with. Are you discipled to get over those things? Or or maybe, in some of our circles, maybe our knowledge has become arrogant. So first question is, are we growing? Second question that I would ask is, are our Christian liberties that we have, that we're protecting, are they absolutely necessary, and can you live without them? Now, I used some words there as I thought through them that we need to ask ourselves as our Christian liberty, are they something we're protecting? So if it comes up in a conversation, you are ready to defend this thing that you want to keep doing, or could you live without it? If you knew it was offensive to um, a family member, to another believer, would you protect it or would you let it go? 1 Corinthians 6, 12, Paul already told them this season. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You know, sometimes we give up things that are not sinful in any way. We just know they seem to have a little bit of mastery over us. Or they're offensive to somebody. Are you willing to give it up? Or are you protecting something that needs to go? Third, are what we call Christian liberties truly good? John, 3 John 11, verse 11 says this, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. See, there's just certain things that the world loves, and they greatly protect it at all cost. Would God consider the liberty that you enjoy good? See, you have to ask yourself that. And you go, hmm, I wonder what he's getting at. We're losing things that we've enjoyed in society daily, aren't we? There's things that some of us are saying, I cannot go to that place any longer. I cannot participate in some of those things. They are no longer good. In fact, they're a borderline evil now. See, that's, that, I think this is what's ha- going to happen to us. It's going to thin out the herd in a sense. God is going to purge those who really are going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ when things get difficult. I was so struck by that, by the play yesterday. Two women with their life on the line in a concentration camp. What were they going to do? Give up or thank God for things that were unthinkable to us? Fourth, do our Christian liberties hinder us from being an example of Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? Maybe something I'm holding on to, that is an example of Christ. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's Abba Father. We are His children. We should look like Him. My boys look like Gene and I. Shouldn't Christians look like their Father? See, there's certain things we give up. We walk in love, right? As Christ also loved and gave himself up for you and offered up a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This is, the, this is what uh, giving up a liberty might be. I want to be an example of Christ. Again, I'm giving you no list. I want you to think of what God maybe challenge you. Five, fifth, are Christian liberties harming our evangelism? This is a really good question. Hmm. In other words, would an unbeliever be drawn to Christ or turn away from him as I exercise my liberty? Paul told the Colossians church, verse, chapter 4, verse 5, says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Maybe I need to give something up. Maybe if I can't do it for the glory of God, I shouldn't be doing it. Six is... If love is truly edifying, verse 1, does the way I exercise my Christian liberties bring loving edification to those around me? Are people edified by my Christian liberties? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Since you have, you have an obedience to the truth, purified your soul for, for a sincere love of the brethren, and fervently love one another from the heart. Are Are liberties edifying? to others. And then finally, seventh, will Christ be glorified in my Christian liberties? Paul's going to end this whole section. This section actually runs from chapter 8, 9, and 10. The last of of chapter 10, he says this, verse 31, whether then we eat or drink, and then he says this, or whatever we do, I would add this, or don't do, (laughs) do it all for the glory of God. It's not easy studying the Scriptures, is it? It Kind of gets you. Because we're these creatures who need the Word of God and need Christ because we err, don't we? And I'm speaking to you as one who errs. (laughs) But God's Word corrects us and puts us back on the path time and time again. Oh, will we all heed this truth. Father, we thank You for this time in the Word today. We ask that You would challenge us to use our Christian liberties to glorify you. And Lord, if we can't use them for your glory, Lord, they really aren't liberties. They're probably idols. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would help us recognize that. Lord, we don't want to sin against a younger believer. We don't want to harm the testimony, the evangelistic outreach of our lives, of this church, or particularly of your gospel. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us examine things. Maybe there's things that by your grace and your motivation through your death on the cross, we should examine each one of us to say, oh, Lord, help me let this go. I'm holding on to this. And let me walk with you in a way that brings glory to you. We're your children, Lord. We know you love us. Guide and direct us through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.